Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Look, so what do you do when you start a new business? You find a uh, business that is completely saturated. So uh, veteran-owned coffee companies, there's not enough of them going around. Yeah. It's okay, though. But- it's okay. You don't have to be the first. You just have to be the best. And you, <laughs> That's right. And you guys are the best. Yeah, yeah 100%. G'day gang, I'm your host Bram Connolly and this then is my podcast. I can't believe it's October already. Well, it is at the time of recording this intro anyway. Today is the 5th of October 2019, so there's only about 8 weeks before the Warrior U live podcast show being held in Sydney. I'm really excited about the show. We're in talks at the moment with a few vendors trying to locate the best place for the event and we've been coming up with some ideas for a giveaway for like a show bag as well. It's all dependent on the final numbers. We're expecting the show to sell out because the interest in it has been amazing. Just a reminder that the event is being held on the evening of the 6th of December in the Sydney CBD. Tickets are $65. All the early bird tickets are sold out in the first week. So the full price tickets are available now on the dedicated web page. Just get your tickets at www.events.warriorau.com.au. Now, this week's podcast is with a really great guy, Ben Horton. Ben is the creator and co-owner of Ironside Coffee. Ben is my type of person. He's hardworking and committed to his business and also committed to growing something bigger than just himself. Like many people from within the army, from the same era that I was serving in, we have many of the same sort of memories and experiences. Ben has some great stories about what it's like to be told you're deploying to Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan and also we discuss leadership, transitioning from the ADF and some general business. Actually, come to think of it, if you've ever stood in formation behind a green trunk and had a sergeant yell at you, hold up a Milbank filter, then this podcast is for you. All right, I must say a big thank you as well to Ironside Coffee for their ongoing sponsorship of the Warrior You podcast. Ironside Coffee are Canberra-based with a national reach. Check out their website to learn more about their products, including coffee, tea, wooden Australian national flags. These are really unique gifts. And also check out their T-shirts and hats. While I'm shouting out to them, why not transition straight into thanking all my sponsors? Aussie Strength, they're getting ready for their huge October sale which kicks off on the 10th and 11th of October. Shout out also to sponsor Sword Australia, the makers of the best tactical gear going around, Get Some Australia, the importers of Jocko Willink's nutrition supplements, and also my mates out at Skilled Athlete. They design training programs and also have an amazing range of workout clothes and apparel. Oh, and I have some exciting news. Next month, wargaming.net are going to be the major sponsor of the podcast for four weeks. I may even get them to run my Instagram account for a week. 
If you haven't played World of Tanks on a PC, you should totally check it out. And apparently there's a heap of veterans that play it, um, which I didn't realize, even though I played it. <laughs> there you go. Okay, it's time to read out a review. We've had over 277 five-star reviews now and 150,000 downloads and growing. This is from Wayne, Wayne73. Review. Doing Reese's Indefatigable course. Mate, and love listening to your podcasts. Keep up the awesome work, brother. We'll be getting your book ASAP. Um, Indefatigable. Hmm. That is fellow Commando Reese Dowden's online course. Probably should go and check that out. Um, I guess it's the step above the whole Warrior U course for joining the ADF. This is for those people who want to be more mentally tough and more resilient. Um, so go and check out Reese's website. Thanks, Wayne. You're in the draw for the Echelon Front Master Ticket, which is worth over $2,500. will be drawn October 31st. Righto. Let's get into the show. Is this your first podcast? Yeah, it is, yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Got yourself a set of headphones, though, so you're better than half the people I've had on. Well, I went out and bought a microphone as well, so how's how's the audio? It's awesome. Your message is going to come through clear to the masses. Hey, let's talk your career first. Tell me a bit about yourself. Where, where did you sort of grow up and then how did you get into the army? So I grew up in um, country New South Wales in a place called Gunnedah and uh, I was always going to join the army. So that's all I was really interested in during high school. And then as soon as I finished my HSC, went to Kapuka in mid of the next year. So I did a little bit of farm handing while I was waiting to go to Kapuka and then I went to Kapuka in July 1998. So same as me, sort of grew up knowing, just knowing. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, look, you know, I was in school cadets all the way through high school, but nothing else was really on the table. That was, um, that was I was purely focused on, on that. So before we go through your career then, so when did you leave? Leave Army? Yeah. Yeah, and you discharged in August 2017. So, so how many years was that? That's... Uh, Just a touch over 19. 19 years, okay. And knowing that you were going to join the Army all through school, as I did, and then then fulfilling that dream and then leaving, did it feel weird leaving? Like all of a sudden there's this separation, you know, that you didn't expect in your life or? Yeah, definitely. It was a struggle to be honest. I'm probably coming out of it now, but that that first year I think of of leaving defence and – was tough you might have heard me saying to people that i think you should get into the the adf with a view to getting out but i mean that's a it's a pretty bloody basic statement when you consider that you and i both went through primary school high school just knowing and then getting in there we, we would never have walked in the door at kapuka and gone right i'm gonna get myself set up for uh, running ironside coffee in 19 years time you know yeah exactly so exactly it's sort of a I, I sort of understand how ironic that is that i say that yeah, so where'd you go from Kapuka? So I was corps enlisted into the Royal Australian Armoured Corps as an M113 or APC crewman, did my driver's course at Puckapunyal and then uh, straight up to B Squadron 3-4 Cav up in Townsville. Good place to, to cut your teeth, I think, straight up into the third brigade. A lot of work with the 1st and 2nd Battalion, a lot of field time and a really good place to, to consolidate those skills as an armoured fighting vehicle crewman. I was always really jealous of the, um, of the MET guys because they had, first of all, back in the 19, early 1990s, they had Bungol 
and they had 10 man rations. <laughs> they had um, hot water and I think, I think they were air conditioned to a degree. Well, they had air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, it was, and Jaffle, Jaffle makers. That's right, Jaffles. So, you, and it's funny, I think the only people that eat the bunghole is the grunts. But, yeah, yeah it was good good currency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it must have been, I look back on it now, I'm actually embarrassed because when you had my section from 4 Platoon in the back of an, you know, from 1RAR in the back of an APC during a, a live fire or something like that, at the end of the live fire when we've dismounted, it would look like a whole heap of rats had been through the inside of this bloody bag and just eaten anything that wasn't nailed down. Yeah, yep, definitely. Yeah, we had to be careful where you kept the jackies because yeah. once the grunts dismounted, it'd be gone. But, you know, that used to come because of not really a true familiarity of operating with the vehicles. But when we were in Somalia, so that was 91, 92, then 93 we were in Somalia and living out of them, working with them and alongside those, uh, what was, three three four cav back then three quarter cav you know you get to respect the driver and the crew and a little bit more you know and you don't just go and steal all their shit (laughs) yeah so and and i think um i often reflect back on this that my first deployment was uh, in effect to east timor in 99 and it so happened that we we deployed with the second battalion group and we'd spent most of that year working with 2RR. We'd done a Shoalwater Bay trip with them. And we were actually getting ready to go on Croc 99 was the big exercise that was coming at the end of 1999. And then the deployment came up. So we knew a lot of those guys that we ended up deploying with in 99 to Timor. We got inserted a couple of times in Timor in recon platoon. We got inserted by the M113s. Bloody hell, what toughest ride I've ever had in my life in Timor they're not they just were not designed for that sort of country you know where we were yeah they were pretty good in Somalia though I think big yeah yep and I'm glad they didn't end up in Afghanistan uh no no that's certainly uh that is that really off-putting someone just walking away while you're talking <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> it was giving uh, me um Tourette's bloody flashing light yeah. in the background uh, certainly, certainly the threat at that point of Afghanistan really not conducive to the M113. Yeah. Did you guys roll over in, into the Bushmasters? Uh, no. So I, um, after I left 3-4 Cav, I went to Kapuka, and, and after Kapuka, I um, went to 2 Cav. So um, I was an ASLAV 25 after that. They're an amazing bit of kit, aren't they, ASLAVs? Yeah. Yeah, very good. You Look, they're obviously getting on now, and the, the new vehicle, the Land 400, will come in and replace them. But certainly had a lot of use in Iraq and Afghanistan and was a I think a great capability and, and provided great support to uh, the infantry. Yeah, it's a. I mean, they, I mean, I mean, it's not a shame. It's good that they were never used in the role that they are actually designed for in Australia, which is that reconnaissance sort of way, because they are almost the way that we used to plan for them back when I was a major. The way we would plan for them was definitely um, sacrificial, given what they were going to be up against. You know, it was there was not there was not very many plans that I put in in place during tactical exercise without troops where where the cav guys weren't going to their certain death. <laughs> I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not giving us much credit for our, um, our, our vehicle tactics. However, you know, you're right, you know, and, and we're, we were always aware of that, that we're going to be out there by ourselves and, and potentially going up against vehicle that have weapon overmatch against us. So, which is hard to you know, believe when you see that gun on the on the Oslav and it's 
when it's rolling at speed and hitting targets at a couple of kilometers or just under a couple of kilometers away, it's a bloody impressive bit of kit. Yeah, and for the for the age of it, you know, it's um, you know, it can generate solution and, and moving targets whilst on them pretty accurately. So, a fair bit of training at the School of Armour, you know, at the gunnery wing there. I spend a, a lot of time putting a lot of work into gunners and commanders to to bring their skills up because there is that that possibility that they may have to go up against vehicles that they are outmatched. What sort of what sort of vehicles might they have had to have gone up against? You reckon? Oh, we, look, we always training our training enemy. We're looking at when we're fighting the counter recon battles, BRDM two. So, you know, they've only got the fourteen point only only got a 14.5 uh, machine gun. And then you, when you start getting into talking about BMPs, that's when you start to get, you know, that's a little bit worrying if you're running into a BMP2 or, you know, God forbid, a BMP3, and then definitely don't want to run into any tanks. So we spend a lot of time on on those individual crew commander skills. And really in the reconnaissance role, if we're firing that, that 25 mil, something's gone wrong. And I think those skills are what really let us or place us in a good position when we got to Afghanistan because I think a lot of the times our best tools over there with our were our sights, mm. our radios, and the actual crew themselves mm. being able to make pretty clear assessments on atmospherics, being able to give that, that battlefield reporting or battlefield commentary um, to the guys down in the green, that was more useful than I think most, most of the time that was what was occurring. It was yeah. very limited time that they were providing actual support by fire, but they were certainly in the position where they could do that. But I think the radios and their reporting were really what made them an asset um, to the combat teams in Afghanistan. There was a couple of times in Afghanistan where I would have loved to have had that bloody Oslav gun in fire support just quietly. <laughs> Yeah, yep. But I uh, never got to work with them in Afghanistan because I was always a long way away from them. But, you know, and there was a few times there where I deliberately – I wonder if there's any senior officers ever listened to this. There's a few times there when I deliberately <laughs> put my Bushmasters outside of a compound at night and, and didn't man them. We were manning them from depth, trying to get them RPG just to see what would happen. <laughs> but they never – the Taliban never came up and RPG'd any of them. Fucking cowards. Yeah. I mean, we did we did worry about getting hit with an RPG in the Bushmasters, to be fair. They, they seemed to be fairly good for, and I won't go into too many details, but they were pretty good against a certain net weight of explosives for IEDs. But they we we were worried about getting hit by an RPG because they're not, they're not designed to withstand that. But the Oslav would probably, would that fare better against an RPG? Like, I don't know the technical specs, but I'm not sure. Yeah, still probably don't want Look, to be yeah, excited. Yeah, so we didn't have um, in Afghanistan, we had, we still had the bar armor on the turret. I didn't have any bar armor on the vehicle, but in Iraq, we had full bar armor um, for the to help us against the RPG threat in Iraq. Um, that was on the hull and the turret. And they took a few RPGs, didn't they, over in Iraq? Yeah, so on Overwatch Battle Group West 3. Yeah, one of our cars got got hit with an RPG and, and took it in the bar armor. Mm, wow, jeez. Yeah, yeah. And so back to Kapuka for you as an instructor? Yes. And then yep. what? So, uh, yeah, two years at Kapuka and then um, up to the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. So that took me to 2007 and then deployed to Iraq Yeah, right. in 2007. So you were there 2007. Okay, yep, no worries. How was that? What did you think of that? Yeah, that was, uh, well, it was my third deployment. I ended up going back to Timor in 2001. So I've done two trips to Timor. I'll oh, see so you were there um, when, when 4 hour were there. 
Or were you there for uh, so one we hour? took over. I went back with the second battalion group. So we took yeah. over from four hour. Yeah, right. yeah. So so it was a, my first deployment to the Middle East. Um, so it was a, a massive eye opener. My first deployment in an ASLAV and I was a troop corporal. So really a lot of career highlights there in that deployment. Yeah, it was, I bet. A, it was a very good trip. Yeah, what yeah. stands out for you is the the key sort of thing there or profound, you know, moment. I was lucky enough as the troop corporal, I had a a, a standing task that I looked after um, most days and that was escorting the training team out to one of the Iraqi barracks almost every day. And that was great as a corporal to be um, given that responsibility to, you know, plan and lead and, and execute, albeit all patrol, but all the same, taking a patrol out, giving orders, getting everyone home, debriefing. And as a corporal, I thought that was that was quite significant. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really good. I know a lot mm-hmm. of I know a lot of sergeants don't get that sort of latitude, you know, unless they're in SF. So yeah, that is cool. And then what what after that? So end of two thousand and seven, uh, just before we got home, I got promoted to sergeant, and um, yeah, to, uh, was appointed into a troop sergeant position in two CAF. So two thousand and eight, um, two thousand and nine, troop sergeant two CAF. How'd you find that? Good job. <laughs> Oh, great job. You know, it, it was one of the, the difficulties of being promoted to a sergeant and staying in the same squadron. And that created, mm. I think, a unique set of problems mm. um, that you have to work through. It's sort of, you know, you get, you've get you changed calls from, from all your mates and it, it takes a little while to adapt. You know, you don't want to – it's a pretty big step change, I think, from corporal to sergeant. Mm. And I think that, that took a little while, didn't lose any, any friendships over it. Mm. So I think I did that relatively successfully. And then I got, I was lucky enough to get an outstanding troop leader. So mm. we had a great relationship and worked, worked together really well. And then subsequently deployed to Afghanistan in 2009. Any advice for corporals getting promoted to sergeant that are staying in the platoon or troop? I think it's very similar. I, I listened the other day, I listened to your knowledge bomb about leading friends. Mm. And I think the, the same advice sort of applies there is that you've got to have that conversation. You can't let it get to the point where one of your mates that was a court, you or corporals together has crossed the line mm. because then, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard. Someone's going to get really upset. Mm. So I think you've got to, you've got to have that conversation and it, it's tough. I think to have that conversation, it's one of those things is, is simple, not easy, but you early, early conversations is probably the best way to do it, but not, and then also don't be scared with it. You know, you're, you're the person that's in that position. Mm. So you've got to start acting like someone in that position should act. And I think generally your peers will understand or your yeah. former peers will understand. Yeah. Jocko Willick talks about the same thing, talks about how he was friends with all of his, all of his guys and, <laughs> and, and he was friends, friends with some of them, but they had, and maybe it's a testament to his personality as well, saying, hey, here's the line, don't cross it. Hey, we're all good mates, let's have a beer together. There's still a line there. And then yep. even to the point where they were about to deploy to Iraq and they were on their mission rehearsal exercise, for use of a better term, and guys wanted to go out on the piss, but they knew better than to ask him, even though he was friends with them, because he, he was going to say no anyway, so why bother? But they, didn't, they never yep. even asked him, you know. I think that sort of speaks to his professionalism in that in that yeah sort of situation um so 2009 afghanistan that's the same year i was there i think 2009 2000 no i was there 2010 yeah how was that trip yeah great that was probably of the five deployments i did that was that was i think the pinnacle you know i was a uh 
troop sergeant, but the way it sort of all panned out, I was a, a patrol commander working very closely with the infantry platoon commander and, and how we and we moved about the battle space and and how I would support his guys when they're in the green. Yeah. You know, the terrain and the threat just added layers and layers of complexity that hadn't been there in any other deployment. But I think the glide path that I just by dumb luck of of the deployments I'd had 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 been setting me up up until that point. Yeah. Um to go on an operation like that. Yeah, I found that in 2010 as well as a as a what 37 year old platoon commander, you know, and had a Somalia veteran, Timor veteran, Afghanistan veteran, and now here I was leading these guys, and they couldn't I honestly believe they couldn't have been in better hands. I don't say that lightly, but you, you all yep. of your experiences lead you to that to that point, don't they? That yep. sort of ultimate deployment, and then after that, it's like. Mm. What next? Yeah. 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 It was, um, and I was really lucky in that, you know, I was once in the same squadron, a squadron, second cavalry regiment. Most of the guys are on that deployment. We deployed together in 2007 to Iraq. Yeah. A lot of those guys had deployed together before that to Iraq on either a sectet or, or a, an Almathana task. We're just spending so much time together. So yeah, it, it had really set us up. And once again, that the, the troop leader that I had, you know, we, he really had, I, I'd made a real change in the way that I'd started to develop myself. Mm. Um, that, and that was driven by him. And so I was really lucky um, to spend a couple of years with him. Cav officers, there's something about them. Like I've always thought that, you know, whether they're, tank, well, tankies are a different breed altogether, but Cav officers, they're definitely, there's something that happens to them when they get to their units, like they get, there's, they have to be so much more well-rounded, I think, than perhaps an infantry officer. Sorry, guys, but they just they have to understand so much more. And then, then I think about the forward observers in the artillery, you know, and and they also have to be a lot more well-rounded in in all aspects. And the, and right in the centre there, you've got the infantry officers that are sort of like, I've got to be a leader. But they yeah. don't have to have the same sort of technical competence that the other two sides of the, you know those officers have to have. Um, I've noticed that. I definitely noticed that on selection when putting officers through selection. In fact, forward observers, the really good forward observers, were generally the, the, the standout guys. And then the and then the cav officers as well just brought something else to the table, you know, which I think is testament to the commando selection. You know, you can come from any sort of you know you can yeah. come in there and. Yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah, it's interesting when I think about that. Hey, what do you what do you miss the most about deployments? Like, what is the thing about deployments that you miss? I was just reflecting on this the other day. Is that all of the other shit doesn't matter? I used to fucking all that love lit- it. I used to love it. All that, yeah, yeah. That, that moment that you know you, you roll out the gate and no, before that, it's the day that you get like the the text message or the phone call or whatever and they go oh you're deploying on the 23rd of February and everything changes and nothing yeah, fucking matters okay. yeah yeah, yeah well, that's right you know and all that other other bullshit doesn't really matter because yeah. now we've got this really clear goal that, that, that this is what we're working but towards ben you've got a trunk no, a- you've got a trunk and you got to <laughs> yeah, push it in that trunk and you've got to check <laughs> yeah. you've got to check that shit six times between now and then yeah, and then you find yeah. out you get over there and it sits there for six months and you haven't even opened the lid on it. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that getting the message, uh, that just reminded me to how we got told we were going to, yeah. in effect, East Timor in 99. whole heap of us 
so we were in the ready troop, but we weren't the ready section. So we were allowed to leave Townsville. And uh, so we went down to Early Beach for a couple of days. And it was just, there was four of us. And we're all, you know, I was 19. And I think the other guy was probably the same, but I wasn't the responsible one. So the troop leader didn't ring me. On the he, cans. Uh, Chasing yeah, Swedish and, backpackers um, and on the yeah, cans. we're in the middle of a middle of a session at one of the backpacker joints at Ellie Beach, and one of the lads, his phone rings, and he comes in and says, "We've got to go back." Well, like, going anywhere? Like, and uh, you know, it's so obviously the troop leader said, "Don't come back now." But yeah, first thing the next morning, we we jumped in the car, pretty dusty, drove back to Townsville, and I went to work, and I didn't go back to my room, so I was a single living any, and yeah, went back to the room. Did some work on the cars. We drove across to the second battalion parade ground, and, and that's where we stayed until popped on the C one thirty a few days later. Unbelievable! Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, mate. When I was yeah. in when I was in nineteen ninety three Christmas, I was in Adelaide, and we got the phone call from someone from like a district support unit saying, "If you're in one area, you have to return to one area," and we weren't even we weren't even the ready company. So the whole battalion was going, not just the ready company. And so, and I had fraudulently or not cashed in my plane tickets for a uh, and taken a <laughs> and taken a bus back for <laughs> shit you used to do back in the early nineties when it was all cash in hand. And I yeah. had to, I, and I couldn't afford the flight home because I had pissed it all up against the wall. And I was on a Greyhound bus for for the best part of three days to go back <laughs> to the battalion. And then you know, and then you're standing there in front of the platoon commander holding up a um you know, which was Vince Cray, fucking legend, holding up a, hold up a panset messing, hold up a, yep. <laughs> hold, hold up a yep. glass knife, hold up this, hold up that. And then the next thing you know, where I'm on a C-130 and, and deploying on the advance party to, to Somalia. But um, what I miss about it is just that whole organisational aspect to it up front and knowing that there's a mission and it's greater than anything that, that you're currently doing. So it's all for the greater good and you're part of it but your the little shit going on in your life doesn't matter anymore, which I think is yep. where what a lot of people they lose sight of that when they leave the ADF. Actually, see, I was going somewhere with this. They lose yep. they lose sight of that mission and they have no more missions for themselves. That's why I try and do a, an Ironman every year, or try and do a marathon, or try and do or do something crazy like this year. I'm going to try and do an ultra. Like it, you know, you have to have a mission for yourself because because when I used to get those missions, things used to make more sense. And I mean, it's the same with being an entrepreneur, you know, anyway, let's talk about, um, let's talk about 2009, uh, in Afghanistan. What was the sort of other than that one five five going off every, every other hour, like you're in bloody Nui Dat. What was God? Cause they still had bloody the fibro shacks and everything then. I think, I don't think they'd built the proper base. Had they? Well, in TK you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, yes, we spent, um, yeah, so the Panzer was still there (laughs) going off all the time, 2009, but we spent most of our time out. So we had rooms at TK, but we spent the first part of the trip. We're up in, spent most time in Baluchi and Chora. Mm. Uh, and the second half of the trip, we're out in the Mirabad, uh, when they built patrol base Wiley. Mirabad, love it. Yeah, Yeah. That Panzer, when I went there in 2008, start of 2008, my first, I didn't, no one had told me about it. And you know, we're this little SF element at TK in this wooden shack, which was right next door to this Panzer. And no one told me it was firing a loom missions. Like I thought, yep. I thought it was firing like one five, like it fired like six one five fives. And like, holy shit, there must be like a thousand of them massing on the wire or something. Yeah. 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 It's like firing a loom yeah. missions 18 kilometers away or something. But um, yeah. yeah, 
Anyway, that was like yeah, and, and and look, another highlight of that trip, which I actually took to is after I left after two thousand and nine, I got posted to the School of Armour as an instructor at Tactics Wing. Awesome. And one of the things that I, I I'd never really worked um, with any special forces at all. You, you know, you rarely even see them. That's the idea. But I got the opportunity myself and I'm either lav got attached to Task Force 66 for, for an operation. And the level of preparation blew my mind. We were in a very professional combat team and the, the infantry OC was probably one of the, the best officers I'd, I'd ever worked for. I trust that guy with my life and, and did. And, yeah, so it was the, that Alpha Company 1 area, I would know slouches. Um, mm. I was very proud to be attached to that combat team. Mm. And we went across there and that, the level of preparation was next level. And... Mm. Really, it was something that always then when I was working with, with young troop leaders when they were doing the regimental officer basic course, try and portray that to them that these guys can't operate in that chaos just because they're super soldiers. Mm. They can operate in chaos because they've done all this work mm-hmm. before the chaos happens. Mm. The planning, the preparation, the rehearsals, like they've paid the price to be able to think and act in that chaos. Oh, man, um, yeah, for sure. Like I talk about... Yeah. I talk about the Battle of Zabat Calais and um, what was a super chaotic time where we had 18-something, don't quote me, 18-something commandos left out of the helicopters. We're up against 15 PKM machine guns and it was absolute and utter chaos, but it was slow chaos. And the reason it was slow chaos is because we had structure that we could put over the top of it. We already knew where our casualty collection point was going to be. We all knew that. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were winning that knowing that. Our enemy didn't know that. Our enemy didn't know we were coming. But we knew this shit yesterday. We'd planned it yep. yesterday. You know, we knew that the helicopters were going to stay outside Audible at eight kilometres and that they were going to come back and pick up any wounded or, or dead. We knew that and they did that. We knew that we had, you know, Apaches. We knew the Apaches weren't going to do a, a run through to look at the LZ before the Blackhawks went in there that we were going to use a Predator to do that. We had all the structure that we overlaid over the top of the enemy. The enemy got a mm-hmm. vote. They get to vote on the plan, but it's that it's that predetermined structure that you set out that that is the difference between winning and losing. And ultimately, it was the difference between winning and losing that day. You know, and you and you're yeah. right. We we take a lot of pride in that. You know, and, and one of the really good he's a CEO next year of Two Commando. Actually, one of the, one of my mates said to me once. He goes, "If all else fails and you can't do anything else, you can't do any other planning. Do a rehearsal of concept drill. Just do a rock drill." Mm-hmm. And then when you finish the rock drill, then do the rock drill with radios. And then when you've done it with radios, then go and fight the battle. And, he, and he's right. When you walk through everyone's, yep. you know, and then, and you've probably heard me say this before, I believe a commander's duty is to, is to plan, make a really good plan, then brief that plan to his or her men, and then to try and hold that plan together for as long as humanly possible on the battlefield so that everyone has known knowns until it's untenable or until. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Until you're reinforcing failure. And then at the point where you're reinforcing failure, well, that's different now. Now you're getting paid 
to crisis manage. Completely different. Just try and fucking win. Yeah. Just try and fucking win. Yeah. You know, but hold it together until that point. And I used to do that. I used to hold it together and hold it together and hold it together to the point where, and it was only a couple of times where it was untenable. And there wasn't too many times where I had to make decisions under in crisis that the the troop, sorry, the troop, the um, team commanders weren't already second guessing because they knew, you know. Yeah, it's interesting you had that experience. I'm glad you had that experience and saw that. A lot of people go through their careers and don't get to see that next level. Yeah, and so, you know, rehearsal of concept drill is something that Armoured Corps guys do religiously. I learned a lot about rock drilling only a couple of years ago um, when I was a warrant officer in the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. It was a brigade commander, Brigadier Roger Noble, who was a... Yeah, I know, Roger. Yeah, he was an XC of the regiment. And he actually come down and we're doing a battle group rock drill. Actually, it was battle group planning, but he was like, let's go and rock drill. And the plan was you know, 25% done, but we went out and started rock drilling and it is amazing that became how the plan. quickly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you start to see massive holes in your, your early plan yeah. to buy, by, by doing that rock drill early and you, you're seeing those conversations and then things like you're seeing that I need to have a conversation with this guy and he's not here. Yeah. <laughs> Where is he? You know, I need buy-in from this guy mm. and that, yeah, plant like that, that red team or that rock drill or whatever you want to call it. Um, regardless of you know what business business or industry, you know, do it early. Yeah, you know, I think um, is is a great party planning or rehearsal. Yeah, and there's something that you and I both do now where we provide leadership consultancy and the like into mining and energy, you know, energy companies, mining companies. And it's interesting for me the the how when you do a rehearsal a concept drill in the military, you're trying to use your weapons and their effects to their best advantage and, and to the greatest distance in some cases with the weapons and, and, and capabilities. But that, that gets lost on in the mining sector. It's like, okay, let's do a rehearsal of concept and let's use these people or these, these assets, you know, whether it's a jumbo or a bogger or a truck or whatever, and, and try and work out what is the capability of that and then rehearse using it at its maximum capability. And they just don't get that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually uh, writing a blog piece at the moment, sort of thinking outside the box, but it's it's about tactical exercise without trucks. <laughs> so I'm thinking about how I could take the cheat concept uh, to mining and, and see what we can do there. I've tried to have the pre-starts in mining run by the shift supervisor and everyone gets a buy-in like on a, like on a cheat, but they all get a buy-in on the plan. But it's so... They are different. And I think with – and I've said this before with Reese Dewar, you know, and especially from coming from an SF background, you're leading a willing pony, you know, or, or in our mm. case a willing stallion, whereas perhaps in the mining what you're doing is you're actually pushing a, a stubborn mule in some cases to get them to, to do something different or, you know, there's a real there's a real problem, change management that needs to occur. In yeah. That, that and I think because they haven't seen how good it can be. Yeah. You know, I think we've, we've had the – we've been fortunate enough to see what – an excellent like. plan, well rehearsed mm. and, and well executed, what that looks like and how that makes you feel when you're, you're part of that. And when things start to go wrong, the bandwidth that you have as a leader that mm. you've, you've created for yourself through that good planning and rehearsal allows you to make good decisions. And I just, I don't think they've seen that and had that feeling of being able to be in that position. Yeah, I agree. What's the best bit of leadership you've seen? Oh, Jesus, there's, there's many examples that, that come to mind because we've been talking about it. I'll talk about the OC of the combat team that I was with in 2009 would give the, the most amazing sets of combat team orders. And they were, it was more than just passing on information. You know, it, it would give yourself and, and all of the lads 
just confidence in his ability and, and everyone else's ability. And, and you could tell by the way that he delivered it, it was well planned. Um, you know, all stakeholders consulted. If something went wrong, someone's going to be there to look after you. Mm. And it just created this real, it put everyone at ease. And myself as a commander underneath that, he also gave me plenty of latitude to also make decisions. Mm. Um, and for me specifically, he would never tell me where exactly where he wanted an SBF. He would, would give me the sort of his intent. He'd give me my boundaries and say, I need you to achieve this. So he would just give me the intent and give me the effect that he was after. And I, that's where, I, you know, the back brief comes into play. And that's something I, I try and work with in the mining sector now is that back brief is incredibly important, I think, mm-hmm. of, of being able to go away yourself as a, as a leader within an organisation, develop the plan yourself, bring your knowledge to the table and then go back and back brief that to your commander. Yeah. Le- leadership from, from my mind, what I, what I learned over the years and what I've learned since then is leadership is very much an energy transference and a hundred percent theater. So if you're mm-hmm. standing in front of guys and, and you can't sell a plan, it's not theatrical and you're not emphasizing, then the energy is not being transferred and neither is the intent, you know, all of my best sets of orders have been stuff where I've hammed it up, you know, yeah. <laughs> you're where you're like just hamming it up, but, but you believe in it, you know, and you're getting people to buy in on it, getting people to yeah. do what you want them to do because they want to do it. As we say. Yeah. And look, the other one I'd like to share was, it's a much more slower burn one. So I was lucky enough to have same CEO for three years at two cab when I was a warrant officer and when I think about him, consistency is the word that, mm. that comes to mind. So this was not, you know, a flash in the pan. He do, you know, say something or do something. You're like, oh, that's pretty cool. He maintained that for three years. Mm. And, and the effect that that had on the whole regiment was, was pretty profound. You know, when you hear diggers talking about the CO in a positive note, you know, you're doing something right. And, you know, as far as the cavalry officer goes, you know, I don't think there, there was too many better. Mm, yeah, cool. Let's talk about Ironside Coffee. Yeah. How'd that, how'd that come about? So, look, Why Ironside? After, that's a silly name. <laughs> oh, well, look, and, and that's exactly what – well, my accountant didn't say that's a silly name. He's like, why are you spending all this money on this branding and everything? And I, was, I tried to explain it to him and he didn't get it. He shook his head and said, okay, no worries. You know, I like it and it's the same as my, you know, my consulting company is Aquila for Leadership. I, you know, I like, you know, it's – it's good. It's something that sort of motivates me when I look at that logo and, mm. and I'm working towards that and I'm building that brand and mm. it's something that keeps, keeps me going and, mm. you know, and I think Ironside's a great name because as I said in the first, um, you know, and it's no, it's no, people know that you're a sponsor of this podcast, but yep. Ironside coffee, just, just a plug. But, you know, like I said, in the first advert that we did together, it's like Ironside's like your support by fire caffeine fix yeah. on the side, you yeah. know, Ironside coffee. Cause Ironside is the call sign of, of the CAV, right? Of the Army Corps, of yeah. Army Corps. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, look, so so what do you do when you're starting a new business? You find a, uh, a business that is completely saturated, so uh, veteran-owned coffee companies, there's not enough of them going around. Yeah. It's okay, though. But- it's okay. You don't have to be the first. You just have to be the best. And you, <laughs> That's right. And you guys are the best. Yeah. All right, keep going. Yeah, 100%. And so 
look, when I so I was doing the leadership consulting and doing a lot of work in mining, and so that's you're not working every day, mm-hmm. as you know. You go up on site for you know five, six, seven days, whatever it happens to be, and then you're back at home. And I'd I'd have a, a bit of paperwork on the back end, report writing, and that type of stuff. But I was looking for something else, and what actually gave me the idea of of going towards coffee is well, to start with, I drink a lot of it, but. I went down and I was uh, working with a client in Sydney and I had four appointments over the day. So woke up in Canberra, had a couple of coffees, pulled over halfway down to Sydney, had another coffee, grabbed a coffee while I was waiting to go and see the first client. And as I walked in, he had a coffee for me. So now I was already up to about five. And anyway, as we had our coaching session, I drank the coffee, jumped in the car, drove around the corner, the next one, and the same thing happened. You know, and I, you know, I didn't want to be rude. So I drank the coffee, we did the coaching session and that happened every single time, yeah. you know, and then it, it sort of, as I'm completely wired driving home to Canberra with absolutely no risk at all of falling asleep, yeah. I reflected on how closely linked going in brewing about leadership is, you know, it had been a key part of my life. Yeah. You know, whether it's, it's going out with your boss and let's go and have a brew and talk about this or, you know, you want to give feedback to one of your guys, you know, go and grab a brew and, or if it's in the field, you know, you're sitting around and you, you may be debriefing your gunner, you, you know, or debriefing your driver, you, you know, you're having a brew. And the, the two things just, just seem to go together pretty well. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. I had a whole heap of questions, but I was just captivated by the, how passionate you are about coffee, which is, you know, obviously so <laughs> am I. Yeah. Yeah. So with regards to building the, the business, did you just go and register a name and go and then go and source coffee beans or was it a little bit more convoluted and complicated than that? Look, I, I know nothing about, well, I probably know a little bit now because I've made a fair few mistakes, but yeah, me too. I just, I just went with the option of just going to start doing stuff. Mm. <laughs> so I, uh, I bought a coffee van, learned a really good lesson about asking the right questions. Mm. Look, I asked some questions, the guy I bought the van off, they weren't the right questions, but I got the van and found I had a fair bit of work to get it up to spec yeah. for the health department. But look, we did all that. You know, we we've uh, we work with the roaster. I went down myself and my wife. We went down and we're going down for this big tasting, and they they welcome us into the roaster. And it was this old, very stereotypical, this old Italian guy. This is the master roaster, the the guy we work with, and he's like, "Let me." I won't try and do his accent. I sound like Borat. I, he goes, what coffee do you like? And I said, oh, I like a strong coffee. And he's like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, that's a pretty bloody good question. I don't know. And he's like, well, do you like it bitter? I'm like, I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, and then we, he, he keeps asking me all these questions and I realise that I don't have any idea what the, the language fuck you're talking about. To- yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that too when I sat down at the Blue Duck Cafe with West, but not, but not give his name, with, uh, with H. And this short black came out and he looked at it and he goes, no, nah, take that back. And she's like, what? And he goes, where's the coffee cream on the top from you haven't done this properly? Take it back and tell the barista I want a short black. Yep. And it went back and there was a bit of talking going on and that came back and it was this most beautiful velvety, you know, light brown colour on the top. And then the barista came over and watched H drink it. And then H, <laughs> yeah, goes, right. yeah. H goes, that's not bad, I'll have three more. <laughs> yep. and i was like what the fuck are you doing mate just get a black coffee like what yeah well, that's right i think i don't know maybe it's because i just drunk so much bad coffee over the years i don't really 
up until that point, I I hadn't really thought about it too much, but you know, it's a new, whole new lexicon. Yeah. You know, when I left army and went into mining and people, it's like they're talking another language. So, you know, I learned that lexicon and now yeah. I'm in the coffee business. I'm, I'm having to learn another language, but yeah, yeah it's, it's been a, a good journey so far making lots of mistakes, but learning from them. So, you know, and the biggest one I think we've learned so far is, so we're, we're family business. So it's myself, my wife and my sister. Mm. And your daughter. the flags. And my daughter. Yeah. Who makes um, the best hot the, chocolate in Canberra. She does. Yeah. Makes a bloody mess as she does it, but <laughs> she makes good hot chocolate. Uh. You know, we're making as a, as a team, we're making a lot of mistakes yeah. and, and I was like, well, what is going on? You know, things were so chaotic. I'm like, it can't be this hard. You know, we're rocking up to the site and we're, we're making, you know, we're, we're stuffing up mail orders and we're, you know, we're rocking up out to our site where we have our van in the morning. We don't have coffee lids or we almost run out of milk. It's like, what is going on? And we realized that we're, you know, I'd forgotten all of the stuff that I'd spent 19 years right. learning. Yep. And it was about, you know, we were, let's stop. No admin, let's, let's no get admin some, log. Yeah, 100%. You yeah. know, let's let's put a template over this. Let's, yeah, where's our checklist? You know, yeah. and now we have a checklist for our, you know, we, you know, jokingly call it pre-battle and post-battle procedure. But, you know, we, we make sure that the, the van is good to go as soon as we get back. So, you know, we, we traded this morning. So the wife's out in the garage now, you know, restocking, cleaning, making sure that everything is good to go. While you're podcasting. Um, good. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, in the morning we, we get up and, and I start the machine up and we make sure we, you know, we do our first parade on it and make sure it all works. And, and then we needed to make another, cause as we were saying before, I'm in a, um, you know, I'm in a, a coffee veteran company, which is, you know, the market is pretty saturated. So like you said, we've got to be better. And yeah. so we then had to start running it like an actual business. So yeah. we have proper meetings. So, you know, yeah. my, my sister's not here, so we, but we get each week we get on and we have an agenda and mm. we have targets and, and we're developing our business plan. So, yeah. you know, if we, we're not, we don't have a unique selling point, so you know, we're going to be better yeah. is what we're going for. And you've got other products as well. Yeah. So the flags, you know, and I, I learned that was off a, uh, a Tim Ferriss podcast, mm. Toby Lutke, I think his name is, is the CEO of Shopify. Yeah. And one of the bits of advice he had on there is, you know, try and bring multiple things that you enjoy together. Yeah, man. And so that's sort of the leadership and bringing the coffee together. And then on another Tim Ferriss podcast, he, it, Tim Ferriss also talks about scratching your own itch. Mm. So how the flags came around is that I wanted one. Mm. And so I'm searching on the internet everywhere for these, these wooden Australian flags. I wanted one for my, for my uh, office and I couldn't find one. Mm. And so I'm sure Mr. Dando from uh, Canada High School Woodworking Department He's a pretty good teacher, but he didn't teach me anything with woodworking. That was a lost year. So I'm not very handy. And look, I wouldn't even attempt to make one. But my sister got married at the start of the year. We went to a wedding and it was on a farm and she self-decorated it. And she had made all these signs and I'm like, who made those? She goes, I did. I'm like, I've got a business proposal for you. And mm. and, and that's how that started. So that's awesome. Um, I've got yeah, one. Yeah. And yeah. It's awesome. And so we're, um, I love it. Straight to the you know, at the moment, they're actually doing, we're selling more flags than we are coffee. So we're, mm. we're almost a flag business that sells coffee, not a so I've got coffee a, business that sells flags. I've got a podcast I did with a Forbes 30 under 30 a couple of weeks ago, and I've been hanging on to it because every time I go to edit the thing, 
I'm like, oh, my God, another knowledge nugget, you know. And I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll hook you up with it after this, the raw, unedited version. Listen to it. Those flags are going to go gangbusters. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's evolved. It's slowly evolved, hasn't it, into this, into more than just coffee. It's, you know, you do hoodies and T-shirts and and the, the flags and, and, you know, and the coffee van. You also do, do events. I think you were doing the Jocko Willick event at the end of the year at Echelon. Yeah, Echelon yeah. So- Muster. Yeah, so I went to the muster last year. Went over to flew over to DC. How was it? Um, it was great. So I've been was I've it? been on. The, was it great? Look, I found it entertaining. Yeah, because I'd read the book multiple times. Yeah, I'd listened to all these podcasts. There was nothing new. Mm. Um, so as I was as I was sitting there, it's like there was no real new yeah. knowledge bombs that were dropped. I found it entertaining. So it's very well produced. So Echo Charles does all the videos and it's really amazing networking opportunity. Yes. And I was actually very surprised with the demographic of people there. I thought it would be military first responders, but it really wasn't. A lot of them were just normal companies and businesses that were there. So a a lot of great conversations, but the highlight was the last night where they did introduction to jujitsu. Yeah. Where, I felt like it was Jocko and his his natural environment, yeah. and just getting to see him give direction and cope was certainly a highlight. Did you get a Did you get a gear or how do they do it? You just got to be there in PT gear or something, do you? Yeah, you just rock up in PT gear. They yeah. just I uh, clear out one of the big conference rooms. It was at a hotel in DC. Mm. Clear out one of the big conference rooms, put the mats down, and yeah, and away they go. So we're we're going this year, fourth and fifth. You're going as well. Yes, and, yep. you, and you guys are providing the the beverages, um, the coffee. On the sixth of December, I'm I'm actually running a a live podcast from the same venue. I think we're going to try and get 200 people there. It's sixty five dollars a ticket, I think. But you're invited to come along to that as well if you want. So what we're going to do is have a have a panel of panel of people and do a um yeah a live podcast about leadership, resilience, and human optimization. And then I'm going to make a big announcement about something that's happening the same night. Awesome. Um, yeah, we're rolling something out. And, yeah, it's going to be awesome, but it's really good because it's carried straight on from the Jocko, you know, echelon front muster, and hopefully some of those same people will, will come to the, the live Warrior You podcast that, that night, which will be awesome, I think. Yep. So what lessons have you learned along the way with building this company? Would you do it the same way again or is there is there – would you do something different? And from, you know, not just from the business construct but the social media sort of side of the house as well. Yeah, one of the things with social media, I literally went out and bought social media for dummies because, you know, one of the greatest lessons I learned is, you know, is reading. Uh, I read a fair bit and it was my troop leader when I was a troop sergeant who who started shaping took me towards deliberate reading. So not just reading for entertainment, but reading mm. to increase your knowledge on specific things. So, yeah. but what drove me to that, I, I built the website. I was pretty proud of my, you know, building my first website. I jumped onto Google and I Googled Ironside Coffee and nothing come up. Mm. <laughs> what just happened? No you know, so that, yeah, I had to go and learn all the like self-teach SEO and and mm. and try and figure that out. So, mm. but I think it's just that constant trying to capture that lessons learned. And my wife and myself, we do that almost every day. You know, what what did we do today? What went well? What went poorly? And what are we going to do tomorrow to make it better? And we we constantly are doing that. And it's I'm, I'm really fascinated about 
the social media thing because, you know, I look at my analytics and after your podcast, it spikes. Mm. Sometimes we get sales out of it. Sometimes we don't. So it's, it's just trying to figure out, mm. you know, what can I do in conjunction with you releasing a podcast mm. to, to get those sales? Cause we we're getting the hits and then, you know, depending on what I do on my social media at the same time affects it as well. So yeah, yeah. it's real. it's really interesting. You know, I, I mean, I'm all over this now. I, I study it every day. I research it. You know, I understand it intimately. I've talked, I talk to social media influencers who've got one and a half million followers. And when I, you know, when I tell them I've got a hundred thousand plus, you know, downloads on the Warrior You podcast, these are American guys. They're like, yeah, you'd have a million if you're in the States. So yep. part of what part of what sort of slows us down is our Australian centric nature, which is why yep. what warrior you will will be going global and will not be an Australian brand because there's, Australia has the population just under California. So you, you and I are in California right now selling to Californians, like that's yep. that's our that's our backwater, you know. Yep. And then when you're looking at your social media spikes, I get the same the same thing. Like I get all these spikes in the social media, but it doesn't equate to sales quite often unless you have motivated people who are listening to you for, for a reason, you know, or you've, yep. in your case, we need to build that brand loyalty. You know, you're not just a, you know, selling coffee. You're, you're a veteran, you know, nearly 20 year army veteran, you know, with multiple tours selling, you know, selling hope, <laughs> you know, you're selling, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're saying, Hey, here, here's this thing, because let's face it, you, you and I are busy because we had separation anxiety because we left the military and rather than feel sorry for ourselves, we went fucking project. Here's a project. Here's another project. Yep. Oh, look, a project, you know, and you've got all these projects, but what that says to others is like, Hey, look, learn from these and let me engage. I'll engage with you. I've built this business. I've built that business you know, these are things you can do at the end of the, the end of ADF isn't the end. It's just that chapter's done, like, you know, reinvent yourself. Um, and I think that's what Ironside Coffee sort of, you know, means to me. It shows me that people can, and it doesn't matter that the market's saturated. Sure, it's saturated, but there's all mm. these dudes out there who are just like, I need a project. Okay, go and do yeah, that, yeah. do that project. Yeah. And some of them, some of them are probably making, well, they're not making what you're, you know, they're not making the profits that you're making. Some of them, maybe some of them, well, it's like the ones in America Black Rifle Coffee, I mean, they are dominating, you know, but they're also a, a social media house now and, a, and yeah. you know, so yep. on and so forth. So these things have an evolution. Yep. Yep. And it's interesting, um, one of the my podcasts that I listen to on regular rotation is is the Black Rifle Podcast and, mm. and Evan Hafer gets on there and he talks about there's a the history of Black Rifle Coffee is a two-part mm. episode is really good and it's really, it gives you hope because it talks about, they go through, he went through the same struggles that every yeah, entrepreneur man. or it goes through. He a talks co- about yeah. a coffee company is a great little business for a veteran to start to learn about a business to then go on and do something else. I think, hmm. you know, because you've got, you've got this one stitched up so they can just, they can come and try it out and then learn, <laughs> learn right, some lessons yeah. and then, but yeah, no, that, yeah. that sounds like I might have a listen to that. So that's their two part series, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The history of black rifle coffee. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And yeah. what about um, some tips from for entrepreneurs and the like? Things that you've you've learned from an entrepreneurial standpoint, um, scaling and budget, things like that. Yeah, so scaling. I think to go back to what I was talking about, of you know, you look at larger companies, um, particularly some that I work with, with as client, or some of the clients I work with. 
you know, very structured, very similar to army, you know, they huddles in the morning or stand up meetings and they'll have check-ins, check-outs. Mm. I think a lot of small businesses forget all that. And, and we certainly did. And, you know, if you think about as you're going to get bigger, well, you're going to do that. So the way we are looking at that is let's not wait till we're bigger to start getting these processes and procedures in place. Let's just do that now mm. and start acting like a professional company right off the bat. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Taylor, mm. Taylor was saying to me, um, that's that uh, Forbes 30 under 30 guy. Um, he was saying to me one third of all of your profits back into social media, which, okay. you know, for a warrior, you, you know, would be a substantial, well, it wouldn't be a substantial amount, but I mean, a third of the profit, I mean, two thirds of it goes towards production anyway, that would leave nothing at the end of it. Yeah. But, but he's, his first company was Feats, F-E-A-T-S, and they were, they were a sock company. They were selling socks on subscription. At one point there, they were making a million dollars a month and they were putting 300000 this is US real money, 300000 into into social media. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, right. So think about what you're yeah. doing and then go one-third. Am I putting one-third into, you know, wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is. And, but, you know, we, um, at the moment, cause we're, we're starting to build, uh, regular customers. We're at the same spot every morning from zero mm. six thirty to 10. So we get a lot of, that's we've Maj- already Majura, got Majura mountain. Bike. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right outside the uh, AFP training facility in Canberra. Yeah. Right. And yeah, we ask people, how'd you hear about us? And a lot of them say from the social media. So, you know, one of our little videos that we made was, you know, just a GoPro on the dash of the car. And we, we drove down the route that you would drive mm. if you were to, driving from the Northern suburbs into the city, which is the, the group of people we're targeting where you turn off and where you drive in to see us. And that's the video they saw. And that's you know, awesome. I, I did a fair, fair few Facebook ads I took out on that one and, mm. and that one was pretty successful. Yeah, that's great. And I think the, I think the echelon front will, will open up a whole new level of clientele in Sydney itself, which is a you know, pretty big market. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. 100%. What else, man? Want to talk about anything else? Yeah. So, look, I, one other thing, so I, I still with uh, have too much time in my hands. So one of the other things I do is I'm involved with Team Rubicon. Have yeah, you right. heard of Team Rubicon? Yeah. So Team Rubicon is a you know veteran disaster response organisation and it unites the – the unique skill sets of ADF veterans and emergency responders to, and all volunteers to, mm. to go into the community and, and help in the, the after effects of a disaster. So, yeah, right. you know, our guys uh, deployed to Townsville when they had the floods earlier in the year, but deployed to Tartha on the, the coast last year when they had bushfires mm. and even recently up in the Philippines and, and Indonesia. So um, I'm the national training manager for team Rubicon. So awesome. we've got disaster response teams in Townsville, Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. And, and look, it's not open exclusively to veterans. I think one of the, the great things about it is that one of the problems veterans have is, is re- reintegrating back into society. Mm. And, you know, one way to do that is to hang out with a whole heap of other veterans, but another way, and I think maybe a more effective way is to get them to actually hang out with some civilians, bring, you know, bring civilians like to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, who are, who are like-minded, who want to give something back to the community. Yeah, cool. And so our, our sort of our niche is, is probably more disaster recovery. So, mm. you know, there's plenty of professionals that when the disaster is actually happening that, you know, whether they're fireys or police or the SES who are in there doing that stuff. But I think there's a real niche market, 
of after what happens after that, mm. you know, after all the, the, the fires out and the, the fire trucks have gone, you know, who is helping, mm. you know, the, those elderly people clean up the yard that the insurance company's not going to do it. Mm. And that's where we come in. So, you know, if you're uh, like hard work, it may be worth checking out. How's that funded? Donations, uh, government grants. Right. So if there's yeah. any, anyone from the government listening right now, how can they help? Well, yeah, certainly um, go onto our website um, and, and certainly if anyone wants to join Team Rubicon and you don't need in one of those centres that I meant, so you can get involved really anywhere in Australia. I feel, um, I feel like just with the name but, Team Rubicon that Jeep should be supporting this with a whole heap of yeah, Jeep exactly. Rubicons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, and look, it's been uh, – it's been great. I deployed to Tathra. I was just coming off site. I boarded a plane in Brisbane. I got a message saying there'd been a bushfire uh, in Tathra, which is down on the New South Wales coast. Mm. Do you want to go? I was, yeah, I answered, said, yeah, I want to go. I had the week off. I was in between swings. So, you know, Monday morning, I drove down to Tathra, got handed a folder and said, you'll strike team leader, team Bravo. Back on. You know, and it was just, just like being a, a section commander again. It was great. You know, yeah. here's your your group of people, here's your tasks, away you go. And it was, it was great. You know, it was all those things that you missed, mm. you know, planning, delivering, you know, orders to a group of people and going mm. out and just doing some hard work. Yeah. So highly recommend it to, to veterans or anyone, if they're looking for something to, to give back to the community, mm. jump on the website and have a look at Team Rubicon. Okay. And what, where can they find that? What's the website? Team Rubicon Australia. Okay. If they search that, that okay. will come up. Yeah. And what's your business websites? Ironside Coffee Co. And I'm transitioning everything onto Ironside Coffee Co. Because yeah. I, you know, I think that's what is unique about my business. I think I'm bringing the leadership and the coffee together. So my leadership blog is now on Ironside Coffee. That sounds good. Yeah, awesome, man. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, Ben Horton. I want to thank you very much for being on the Warrior You podcast. You've been a great guest. We're going to get you on again soon. This means I don't have to advertise this week, does it? No, <laughs> or, or do I? No, I do. Okay, I can no, tell. Well, I can I, tell. I, I do. I've, I've already paid. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. No, hey, look. Um, thanks for having me. It's uh, my first podcast, and I was very honoured for you to have me on. Thank hey. you. Oh, that's awesome, man. All right. Righto. Let me just wrap a few things up before I go. I just want to let you know that I'm teamed up with Patreon. This is so that you can donate assistance to the podcast. Obviously, putting all this together each week does come at a financial and a time cost. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head to www.patreon.com forward slash warrior you and you can throw in whatever you feel like. It's greatly appreciated. And there are some cool giveaways on the site too for different tiers of sponsorship. So please check it out. Um, I'm just amazed that anyone's actually listening to the podcast at the end here to even go to Patreon. Right, and finally, just to end the show, this week the podcasts I've personally listened to have been as follows. I've listened to the Rich Roll podcast, the Jocko Willick podcast, of course, and I listened to How I Work by Mantha Imber. Righto, thanks everyone, and remember, live a life worth living. Catch you later.